Are you craving incredible song recitals? Are you interested in a behind-the-scenes view into professional song making at the highest levels of artistry? Are you looking to develop your own artistic and entrepreneurial skills as a classical musician in this ever-changing 21st century landscape? If you found yourself saying yes to any of those questions, look no further than Cincinnati Song Initiative's week-long program, The Fellowship of the Song. Taking place this year from May 19 through 26, The Fellowship brings together some of the country's brightest song performers and teachers for a week of classes, concerts, and study events. And we invite you to join us as an auditor, either in person in Cincinnati or online wherever you may be located. When you join the fellowship as an auditor, you gain instant access to the entire week's events and can go back and relive the magic through HD video recordings of each and every session. To learn more about this incredible new opportunity, visit CincinnatiSongInitiative.org slash audit. Hey everyone, I'm Laura Lavoir and this is Song Cycle the official podcast of Cincinnati Song Initiative, where we talk everything song, its history, its creation, its performance, and its ability to tell stories that keep us connected. After a summer hiatus, we're back for more here in our first episode of season two. In this episode, I get to talk to singer Martha Guth and pianist Erica Switzer of Sparks and Wiry Cries. A nonprofit we at CSI have been fortunate enough to partner with in the past to bring you events like the Song Slam. I feel like this episode is kind of like those TikTok videos that say, watch till the end, because there's some kind of surprise or plot twist. Just trust me, stay tuned to the end. I promise it'll be worth it. Martha and Erica, it is such a pleasure to have you all on our first episode of season two of Song Cycle. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks. We are so, so happy to have you. Can you, for the good people who have followed us through season one and now have survived to season two, can you tell the good people who you are, what you do, why you do it, and your connection with us at CSI? Um, Martha, if you want to go first. Yeah, sure. Uh, So I am a soprano. I also teach at Ithaca College. And with Erica, we together, we run Sparks and Wiry Cries, which is um, an organization like CSI dedicated to art song and in all of its facets. So dissemination, articles, performance, commission, all of the things that we can do to sort of to keep inspired. Uh, and uh, how we are, how, how I'm related to CSI, you know, Sam reached out a number of years ago for a recital for the two of us. So Erica and I came and performed a recital for CSI. And then ever since we've sort of had this, kept this connection with Sam and then went on to, to do a couple of joint projects that I imagine we'll talk about. We definitely will. Erica, anything to add or do you want to introduce yourself to the good people? I'm Erica Switzer. I'm a pianist. I also teach. I'm at Bard College in the Hudson Valley, New York. And um, yeah, Martha has already introduced what Sparks and Wiry Cries is. Before you started um, our conversation, you were talking about how CSI, you were inspired by how it brings together colleagues and creators and how much you enjoy these conversations. And I was thinking like, that's exactly what started Sparks and Wiry Cries too, is that Martha and I had all these amazing friends and we were so proud of their work and we were so are so in love with the repertoire and just wanted to share that and like continue the energy of of that conversation. So I think we have a lot in common. Absolutely. So one of the things that I wanted to make sure that I asked you before we actually got started is for the folks who are listening who don't know, like they'll hear a title of an organization, Sparks and Wiry Cries. That is such a cool, badass name. And can you explain what the thought process was behind sparks and wiry cries it's so it's just it's riddled with feeling and electricity what was the the thought process behind sparks and wiry cries it's 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 actually a ned roram song uh and a paul goodman poem i should say before that (laughs) um and the first line of the song is what sparks and wiry cries shall i strike first upon the iron string And that was, it just seemed incredibly evocative of exactly what we do. 
yeah, piano strings, I guess, used to be iron. <laughs> and, um, and, but also, you know, all these sort of like the wiry outbursts, it seemed like it was exactly also indicative of what a singer does as well. Yeah. And so that's where it comes from. I think there was a little part of us that kind of felt, well, you know, as, as soon as people know who we are, then it'll, then it'll seem cool. And maybe we've reached that status. I don't know. But, um, but at first we, we, I think there was a lot of worry that, you know, people would be like, what is that? What does that even mean? Why'd you name yourself that? <laughs> we've definitely been asked those questions that, that has happened. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, no, absolutely. Martha, I mean, like two years in, I think we got like kind of a lot of people asking us that question. And I remember, I remember just feeling so grateful for Martha's conviction and saying like they um, they'll remember it like they they won't remember it until they do, you know. I was like, and I think we have reached that stage within our community, anyways, of people remembering. Absolutely, like Martha said, it is it's so evocative. And to me, when when Sam first mentioned to me like who you were and what you did, I was like, that is such a great name for an organization. So cool. yeah, you're definitely in the notoriously cool part of my book. So I don't know if that means you've accomplished something, but it's cool to me. So for the two of you, as we are both in, we're all in an organization respectively that deals with the, the creation and the performance and the interpretation and the innovation of song, for the two of you, what is an art song? Well, an art song is poetry set to music, and it can come from a number of, of cultures, a number of time periods, um, including our present from locations all over the planet. I think most music students in this country are familiar with the traditional canon, as they say, of art song that we kind of trace from, you know, Beethoven to Schubert and then kind of flowing out from that point. But uh, the more that we live in the 21st century and the more that we start to understand the connections to other cultures that also have their poetic traditions and their musical poetic traditions, we start to see that we're actually part of a much bigger picture of musical rendering of poetry. That's what it is, I think. That makes it an incredibly exciting time to live in because it's such an, a wonderful time period of unearthing for us, I think, for, for, for anybody who's, who's interested, yeah. I talk about this a lot on the podcast just because I think it's one of the most fascinating things when I get to talk to people who participate in this process of art song is to hear how people define it. For some people, the poetry is paramount. For some people, it's the symbiosis of poetry and setting. For some people, it's the performance. For some people, it's the story. And one of the things, Martha, that you said that just really kind of summed it up for me. And um, Erica, you mentioned this too, in the 21st century, we are unearthing so many kind of new stories and connections to different parts of ourselves and to different parts of the world, to different cultures, to different languages. And I'm kind of jumping around in the, the vague script outline that I sent you, but what do you see or how can we use art song as a form of storytelling to encourage connection, to encourage collaboration between different groups of people or different ideologies, different languages, different cultures, to bring about the betterment of humanity, to bring about social change. How do you think we can do that through art song? I, I don't, I mean, I don't, the betterment of humanity seems like an awful, that's just a big thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if we can wear that, <laughs> but, um, but I do think that I think that love for what you do is infectious. And I think that um, being welcoming and open to all stories is really important. And, um, and to try and offer as many opportunities to as, to, 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 the, to, to, as, to as many populations as there are is also super important as well. The stories that we get to tell through music and poetry are important because they do change us. I think that we know that. We know that really intimately. We know that we ourselves have been changed by this, these stories. And so we hope that through performance and through um, these kinds of collaborations that we also can affect that kind of change or just move the dial slightly. I, th I think, you know, you 
you kind of hit the nail on the head right off the bat with that, with talking about love, because I think that that is, you know, what the opportunity that we have in singing and playing these songs is that we have an audience, however big it is, right? And whenever they listen in this day of endless streaming possibilities, right? That when we have, when we have listeners, then we have people who are opening themselves up to the diverse stories of song. You know, I think it takes time to digest a song. I know that as a pianist who spends every day doing it, it takes time. And so I can only imagine for those when it's a new art form that they're encountering, it takes time for those layers to unfold within that new set of ears, right? Like you might appreciate the music first, or you might appreciate the poem first, and then over time get to know. But that's the same process we go through getting to know people. We're struck by one element, and as over time we, we get to know them better. So I think that's the um, comparison maybe is it's just it's another opportunity to understand another person's experience how to slow people down enough to have time for that I mean I think only a pandemic can do that I think you're absolutely right and that is I think why a lot of people were drawn artistically whether they were artists already or just um, kind of artistically inclined is like immediately when the pandemic started you saw people putting out videos of them singing or just making art or music for the sake of making art or music because that sort of processing through like like you said sort of the first impression of something and then moving through to something deeper and finding that connection through the music is has been really important in while we are in this slowed down place and I think it has hopefully helped us all gain a better sense of who we are, both as people and artists and as global citizens. Earlier today, Martha and I were talking about just really noticing a rise in compassionate behavior in the, in the learning spaces that we inhabit at work. That's really that nice to hear. That there's a really beautiful openness about people, their hearts, their willingness to support each other. It's, it's really heartening. That is so lovely to hear, um, especially in a time when I feel like we are finding in the news that there is a lack of compassionate interaction. Um, so that is that's heartening to me to know that that is happening in both learning spaces, but also kind of in artistic circles as well. That is very heartening. To switch gears just a little bit, I want to talk as we're kind of discussing this um existing in in song in the 21st century during the pandemic and all of that what what was sort of your mo i guess for keeping sparks and wiry cries going during this time and your your sort of vision for keeping that connection keeping the music going during a time when a lot of people that at least that i've talked to didn't feel like it was really a productive creative time i mean i th i think it gave us purpose, and that is really critical. Also, we really love being able to support our colleagues and to continue their work and to see through the commitments that we had made in whatever way we could, and that we didn't have to not pay somebody that we had promised to pay felt really good. And it, you know, if you can do that, then you feel kind of less powerless in the face of, of all the cancellations that were kind of happening to much larger organizations, right, who faced a really different kind of physical reality of concert production. But I think it was such a beautifully expressive time to tell stories. And, it, and we were fortunate to be telling stories in our, in our last season of concerts in January of this year, fortunate to be telling stories that were really relevant to some of the struggles that people were facing as a result of the pandemic or as a result of, you know, issues of racial tension or, you know, disrespect, dehumanizing experiences that people go through. So it felt like exactly the right time to make it possible. And, you know, thankfully, thankfully we were able, we had a budget in place and we were able to see it through in terms of virtual production. And thankfully we were able to have enough interest in what we were doing that we were able to gather funds to secure this coming season. So I think we're lucky that our budget is small enough that that is a thing that can happen. And we're lucky enough that we have a small organ, we have small overhead still at this point. 
Sam and I had many discussions about that exact thing where we felt as though even though we were in the midst of a pandemic, even though things were happening virtually, we were still able to pay people. We were still able to make art. We were still able to provide sort of a sense of livelihood and normalcy as much as we could during this time when so much had just, it's like the tables have been completely flipped over. And that actually brings me to the next thing I want to talk to you about, which is the song slam. So this is such a cool thing and was so massively successful during the pandemic. First, can you tell the people what is a song slam, how it was born, and how how you kind of see it propelling and perpetuating song in like a really new and unique and wildly fun way? So it, it came out of um, a slight frustration of having really small audiences. <laughs> you know, because that's what happens when you've just started an organization, right? And so you start, you start, you know, the wheels start turning about like, how do we, how do we reach out to other communities? How do we figure this out? And um, so it was simply a, a, a taken from a template of what a poetry slam might be. I mean, not all poetry slams are done this way, but some are, uh, you know, you get up, you perform your piece, um, and then an audience votes, and and there are sometimes prizes uh, of whatever kind delivered to their, you know, first, second, third place. But it's usually you sign up, there's no jury, it's first come, first served, anybody can do it. There's a sort of egalitarianness about it. Um, that's similar, I guess, in some ways, to like an open mic night, I suppose. But this does, of course, because it's art song, it requires a lot more preparation. You know, it's not alone preparation, I should say that, because, of course, a piece, a poet, a poem and a performance of a poem requires a lot of preparation. But in this case, it had to be collaboration. So it's, uh, you know, so we have teams of um, composer, singer and pianist and sometimes poet although there's a choice to use a, a poet in the public domain if, if wished, or uh, to get permission. And, um, and then they will work together to premiere a piece, just one song, and we will have signups that are first come, first served. And so you can come and up to, I guess, 10, 12, 15 teams can perform in an evening. And you can have, your audience will come and vote for their favorite. And what this does is it, creates a lot of energy in the room because um, teams will get their friends in to come and vote for them. Um, but also people just come because they're interested and media seems to be kind of interested to promote this in a way that sometimes they're not as interested in promoting art song recitals. So there's a lot of kind of very specific things that as administrators feels really good about it. You know, we generally have full houses. People are excited to sign up. The music is new, it's interesting, the audience is engaged. But for me, what I think has come out of this is a number of other things. And that is we've built a bigger community in regional areas. So that people begin to know who the artists are and they begin to work more with each other. And then also there is this idea of setting up access as, as equal, that, that it, will, it doesn't matter really if somebody says, you know, we've had a lot of people ask, but what if the pieces are not very good? Eh. It's okay. It's five minutes. It's over, you know, and like, and in a sense, it really doesn't matter because it will, that, that will get sorted. Time will allow that to have it get sorted out in the wash. What is worthy of being done again will be done again. Um, and we also have a number of really exciting publishing opportunities that, that, uh, that, that will kind of, I think, help to lift all of that up. And assessing value is so subjective. I mean, we actually had this past Song Slam, we had a, um, a jury participate in a part of the puzzle of prizes, right? And and all I really want to say about that is that we, I think every piece got voted for by someone, you know? I mean, there, we, the I expected greater consensus than we had in that panel of five people. And that was really beautiful. Because it really reflects that songs are, are so deeply personal and what we value in a song it has such range. That's something I have loved so much about the, the past few song slams that I've, I've witnessed or um, in this past year, like actually kind of helps facilitate. And I think it's so 
so brilliant on so many levels. But one of the things that I love is that in in a way that kind of a traditional art song recital can't do, it really does, like you were saying, Martha, just bring in a whole new community of people. And I've never seen such excitement for new music but it's so great and like you said it doesn't really matter if it's like good or not because like you were saying Erica is that you never know who it's going to speak to yeah and And also a lot of it is really good I should say that like we don't we have found we've been continually surprised by how how high the level is and how how high it continues to rise and something that really speaks to me just as a person and as someone who who loves to share stories and new music and all of that is like this is such a beautiful treasure trove of contemporary stories and people who have contemporary interpretations on older stories they feel so alive and so just ready to be present in the moment and i think it's so special and so great Thanks. So that's my <laughs> my fangirl moment. And when I actually had the opportunity to be involved in helping CSI put on our virtual song slam this past year, I really kind of got a first row seat at at what goes into this and how much people care about uh, both as audience members, but people who are actually involved in the creative process that this is this is a really special opportunity. And I'm I don't know how many people my podcast actually reaches, but like. If you're interested, do it. <laughs> go either go watch and vote or like actually sign up and do it because this is such a fun and just sort of all-inclusive opportunity. And this is just, it's one of my favorite things that we do. And when I found out that y'all were involved in that and I was like, someday I got to sit down with them and talk to them about this. Yay. So, I love that. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's a really fun and unique thing. And one of the most successful disseminators of art song I've ever seen. So (laughs) it's true. Um, So that said, and, you know, apart from just the fact that we are generally speaking involved in classical music, right. And notwithstanding a pandemic and the fact that the arts are generally just losing funding and all these other things. There are also so many amazing rewards that come along with the work that we do as artists and as administrators. And so I'm curious to hear for the two of you what some of those challenges have been as you've worked through building Sparks and Wiry Cries and disseminating, you know, art song and our mission of bringing it to the world, but also like the rewards. I think it's really important to emphasize both sides of that because people like to say, oh yes, I have been struggling through this, 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 and this thing. But like remembering that there are also amazing rewards and, you know, satisfying moments that come out of the work that we do. What have some of those moments been for the two of you you, as you've been working through this, both as administrators and as performers yourselves? It, it It's challenging. It's always challenging to run the not-for-profit. That has been a huge learning curve for us. I mean, from everything from the structure, how to gather a board, how to, you know, I mean, it's like, it's, there's so many, just running a business. It's really um, not what we trained for in music school and something that we have learned as we've gone. And we're really grateful that we've had the support that we've had from the board members. And, and now I think we're hitting a kind of growth period and we feel a little bit more mature in that process. And it, actually just that sense of being more mature in the process is a reward for mm-hmm. sure. Cause it's nice to not feel like a beginner at everything anymore. Um, that's a great pleasure. I think the, the artistic rewards are everywhere. You know, I mean, with every festival that we've produced or even every article that we've published on our on our e-zine, we're just so proud of our community and their creativity and their research and the breadth of knowledge that's that we can enjoy because of that. It's it's brilliant. So the the rewards are in a way the easy part. But yes, it's challenging to run a business and and our dreams are always bigger than the current moment and what we're achieving but that's what that's what leads to striving and 
persevering through those, you know, tricky transitions. Any additional thoughts on that, Martha? No, I don't think so. No, I think that's, that's exactly it. Yeah. <laughs> totally. And Erica, yeah. you said something that I really, I just want to hold on to for a second is you talked about how you feel like you're coming into this period of maturity mm-hmm. um, for Sparks, which is something I think we all strive for in life generally. We just want to feel like we're more on top of things. That we have some experience under our belt. What I'd like to know, and this is one of the things I did want to make sure I talked to you all about while we were here, is as as fellow nonprofit directors and creators, what would you say to people who may not feel like they're in that phase of maturity or that they um, would like to start something like this, but they're not quite sure how to even start? What would you say to the, I don't know, what would your pep talk be <laughs> if you that had is- one? It's totally okay to fail because it's going to happen anyways. <laughs> You're going to fail up, hopefully. Yeah. And, and that, it, you know, this started basically as I would say like a pet project kind of like, wouldn't it be fun if we did something like this? And then it kind of ballooned over time. And so, and it, it, it has at other times, sometimes been unwieldy and at other times been more slender. And it, it really, that has been a product of our personal, you know, the way that our lives had to, had to be at certain moments or just the way that our budget was. Um, and so all of those things are okay. I found that Erica was really wonderful at putting things into perspective because she just is always so good at being like, you know, this is not a, this is nothing. None of this is going to be the end of the world if we don't do it. And, and, and B, you know, like it matters deeply to us. Um, our, our job is to make it matter to other people, but, but now it doesn't have to be this second. You know, like there's time. And so that I've taken so much comfort and like I've learned so much through that to sort of be like, okay, yeah, I can just let this coast for a little while. And then also, also time lets things, I don't know, things almost always get better with time. Yeah, I think work with the people that you love (laughs) because that helps a lot. (laughs) You know, that would be in my pep talk for sure. Um, You know, remember try to remember why you're doing it, have a story that, that you can hold on to in the moments where the persevering gets tough. I mean, it, we, we want to keep that connection to our passion and not let the, not let the work become the only presence in the room. And organic growth is so, so important. Like Martha said, it's not linear always, and, but the organic is, is the best. I think if you force something beyond its capacity too soon, that, that, that leads to a kind of failure that is hard to recover from. That's really good. Just advice, I think, for life, generally. (laughs) That's really, um, I think, important for, I mean, just me as a human to hear, but also just to kind of keep in perspective that, like, I am a planner. Like, I like to, you know, know what my next steps are to do something. But this idea of especially as a, as a relatively small organization, you know, you said you don't have a ton of overhead, you have the opportunity to pivot as necessary, mm-hmm. you know, when these challenges like COVID arise, right? So what were, what were some of those, forgive the pun, pivotal moments for you <laughs> when you realized like, oh my gosh, things are changing. And was that like, did you find that that was really an opportunity for y'all to like reassess kind of what you were doing. Was it an opportunity for growth or, I mean, I'm sure like all of us, there were moments of like, oh my God, what are we going to do? But what were some of those pivotal moments for you over the last year and a half as we navigated through the pandemic? I mean, we were fortunate that we, that our season had been in January and that the pandemic started in March and that our next festival was not until January. So and and we both work for colleges, so we were so um, so very much surrounded by conversations about how to pivot. So th- there's like bigger structures where that we could kind of process also maybe our ideas about the festival, you know, in other circumstances. That was really helpful. You know, one of the more complex pivots was when we realized. Basically, we, we decided we would film everything, like many people did, and we were able to do that in November of 2020 for the January festival. But one of the one of the hard pivots was that when we realized the singer coming from North Carolina and me being up in the Hudson Valley, we were supposed to record together with a poet from Detroit. She was going to come in and 
and speak her poetry. And we couldn't do it because at that point, the state, there, there was like a travel ban, right? That was, you know, it turned into, we found this amazing video um, editor, it's probably producer, um, two of them, uh, who had a vision for how to make that possible. So we, we had to, you know, gather materials from all those locations and stitch it together in a meaningful way. And that, that was, that was a very effortful pivot, but it really paid off. So that that's um, COVID-19 versus, no, I'm saying it backwards. Ramadan 20 versus COVID-19 and Jessica Caramore's magnificent poetry and Andrew Stanilin's music. So that was very rewarding to see that come together because it, for a while there, it looked like, how are we going to overcome this challenge? I viscerally recall those moments talking with Sam, trying to figure out how the heck we were going to make season five happen. That was, well, and your that season was, is, is more spread out yeah. too. So, and it's, it's sort of, of over it an keeps academic coming. Year. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that, you know, again, we had the benefit of not having a ton of overhead. And so we were kind of able to make those decisions amongst ourselves, but like talk about, I don't know if I would call that organic growth though. <laughs> That was trial by fire. <laughs> it was kind of amazing to watch all of the thing, all of the content that you produced. I mean, over it was, and it just kept coming, which I thought was the most impressive part about it because it never, you guys really never let up. I feel like we almost, we were able to a bit to take some stock, like Erica said, we took time and, and, but um, yeah, given the nature of the way that your season runs and all of the other projects that you have running, it was really impressive. Thanks. We got by by the skin of our teeth. <laughs> um, so, Martha, you said something that um, is actually going to beautifully uh, go into the next question that I have for the two of you. Is you you mentioned taking time yeah. and how how you and Erica were able to to take that time between your festivals to kind of just assess where you were at, what next steps were, and just kind of how to continue to evolve through COVID nineteen into what we kind of what we are now. And this may be because I've been listening to a lot of Brene Brown's podcasts recently. She's (laughs) great. She's the best. (laughs) I'm listening to the episode on burnout right now. It is most excellent. Oh, I Um, totally quoted that in an article that I just wrote. Yeah. Brilliant. It's a good one. But one of the things that she talks about a lot in her um, Unlocking Us podcast, but also in her Dare to Lead podcast is this like idea of obviously being a leader. And one of the things that I think has benefited me and Sam as leaders in, you know, in our nonprofit is kind of assessing what the aspects are that help us lead better. And Martha, you said taking time. And I'm curious to hear for the two of you, what have been the qualities of leadership that have helped you kind of maneuver through into what you are and as Sparks and Wiry Cries and, and as artists today and what what that means both for you and what it means just generally as a leader in the arts today. So what have some of those qualities been that you've kind of garnished for yourselves and admire in other people? Oddly, I think it's really the same qualities that I admire in a musical collaborator and that is um, an ability to listen and I try, like, I find that I am somebody who jumps in sometimes. And uh, it has been my biggest um, challenge, but also it's, it, it comes with the best rewards when I just try and sit back and listen <laughs> to, to what's going on and to just, and to take in um, opinions and ideas and all their, you know, from everywhere. And that's, that's generally when the most gets done. And so I, I think, yeah, taking time and listening. Yeah, I agree with that. And I I think it's also enabling the best in others. When I think of leadership, I think about oversight versus doing. Does that make sense? So understanding who, who you're serving in a leadership position, what their skills are, what their vision is, what they bring to the table, and really encouraging the best of that from them. Because we don't, I could not work with myself. That would be, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm, I don't want, it's, it's not about me. <laughs> like, that, I would drive myself nuts. Um, but uh, people who have other skills that I admire, I want to see what the capacity is there and, and what they, how they can shift. And so, like, I, for example, I think Martha has incredible vision. And if I can help realize that vision by, like, 
breaking it down into steps, which I think is one of the functions of like my role in the organization, that that then her vision can really live and hopefully, you know, be stable because I am like fastidious with some of the like underlying structural things. So I guess it's also knowing what your skill set is and allowing others to to bring theirs to the table. I mean this in the most complimentary way imaginable. As both administrators and as performers, you have the most perfect like singer pianist relationship. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Because well, I think that's great because like I feel like as a singer, you have a certain level of vision that you have to essentially project or invite the audience into, right? As a singer, that's your job is to tell that story and to invite people in. And your collaborative partner, whether that's a pianist or um, some other instrumentalist, it's sort of your job to support the vision and break it down into the keys and allow those two things to sort of come together and become something that's greater than the sum of its parts. I just, uh, I don't know if that was a moment of brilliance or just strikingly obvious, but I think that that's a really important thing to keep in mind, in my mind, as y'all were talking about your various kind of leadership aspects. Leadership. I mean, I, I, I think it's, it's a, it is a dialogue. It's a conversation. And I, I think I've given a couple of talks around, around that, that kind of conversation. And I, I find um, the feedback I get suggests to me that maybe it's not usual for someone who works in like a support position to consider themselves a leader. <laughs> but I guess I, I give myself that place because I feel like I actually have to make a lot of active choices to fulfill that role. It's not riding somebody else's coattails, not at all. In fact, it doesn't work if you do it that way. It sounds like crappy. So I think we all, in in many, many different roles at many different levels and hierarchies that we all exist in, like leadership is always possible. I think that's great. And something Sam is always reminding me of as we're making decisions and things, and I'm sure you all have your own variation of this, is like, as a leader, and especially as a leader of a nonprofit, or a director of a nonprofit, or a creator of a nonprofit, like, it's not about you. No. It's about the people you serve. Yeah. And I think that sometimes that gets lost in other, we'll say, larger organizations that maybe didn't survive the pandemic as well as some smaller organizations maybe lost sight of that particular aspect is that it's not really about you it's about the people you serve that's that's exactly right I mean I think that I mean it's it's interesting and who knows why some people some some you know companies had to fold and and others did not um I know I'm sure it's an entirely individual thing but but it is I will say that in our in our growth, it is a very tempting thing for chasing funding to try and change what you're doing to fit the chase. It's very easy. And um, instead of waiting for exactly the right opportunity and like, or, or you know, just figuring that out. And so it's, it's um, and saying, okay, okay, it has to be smaller because we don't have X or Y or whatever. And um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's exactly right to keep the mission exactly at the heart of it. We are not. We're not the most important part of this mix. The other thing I do want to say, actually, though, kind of comes back to your one of your earlier questions, that often when we start these projects, they are totally because you want to like, you know, if somebody's like, I want to start an, a song organization, it's because they love performing and they don't have enough, uh, the opportunities that they hoped they had. That happens too. And that's okay, because missions and projects and ideas evolve and and hopefully our better selves sort of take over and then it becomes completely hopefully more selfless in that way yeah Yeah, absolutely I certainly know of arts organizations and I'm sure y'all do too where it was created purely to create performing opportunities for the folks who founded it but I also think that in some sense that's okay because as we all know there are there are performers there are so many more performers than there are opportunities and so it how wonderful that people have that that it can happen that way I think it takes a certain level of gumption to say there isn't an opportunity like you were saying looking for waiting for the right opportunity it may not always come so having the gumption to go out and make it for yourself. Yeah. And I think, um, I can't remember which one of you said it earlier, but like 
the love for what you do is infectious. So if you do start this nonprofit, even if it's just for yourself at the beginning, the love for what you do will spread to other people and other people will naturally want to get involved, which is kind of the beautiful thing about what y'all do is like, I mean, I keep going back to the song slam just because it's like one of my favorite things, but like <laughs> it naturally just like, I would have stumbled across it anyway, even if I wasn't involved in arts admin, because it's such a cool, awesome, vibrant way of engaging with art song. And it will naturally attract those people who love that. So as we're talking about leadership and sort of what your roles have been in that, what are or who are some of the people who have been sort of exemplary leaders to the two of you or mentors? Um, and what are some things that you've gotten from from those people? That was the inspiration, all of these amazing people that we've worked with and wanting to carry that torch, right? Two came to mind immediately, Margot Garrett being one who has been on our board since the beginning. And she was my teacher while I was a student at Juilliard. And and she has been a mentor from before that time and continues to be. And I think that she is a she is a leader. She is she leads with kindness and compassion, but also a very clear sense of what's coming and where she's going. And, and I think she's taught us a lot. And, and Rena Sharon, who was the artistic director of the Vancouver International Song Institute that ran from 2007, I think, until 2014. And she also incredible vision. How it grew over its seven-year life was truly incredible. And she has a kind of a boundless curiosity and openness to experiences from people around the world that was totally inspiring. Incredible women. Rena's on my list too. I mean, she's, she's taught. It's because she's a beautiful musician and also an incredibly compassionate leader, like administrator. She just knows how to bring out the best in everybody. And when people are having issues, she also knows, she just knows exactly how to step in beautifully in any situation. She really does. You know, she's also, she's also great at laughing when things go wrong. When people have that skill, I'm like, oh, I need to spend more time with them because I'm not great at that. I like take myself a little too seriously sometimes. And why just, I'm like, got to channel that energy of like, you got to laugh it out because it's just too sad otherwise, or whatever, you know, whatever the circumstance is. Yeah, I love that about her. I have to say that I truly can't think of a single podcast episode I have recorded thus far, where Margot Garrett has not been mentioned. (laughs) And like, that, to me, is so profound, that like, one person can ignite the love, like, and this is an art song podcast, that she can ignite the love of song and collaboration and making music together in so many people from so many different facets of life blows my mind and she's a great pianist great collaborator amazing teacher all around just like beautiful classy lovely human compassionate and smart and fierce and all of the above yeah (laughs) no question yeah yeah so I just I think you know I think we're what 12 for 12 now or 13 for 13 on however many episodes we have recorded now where Margo has been highly revered amongst us. I hope she's feeling the love right now. Before we kind of wrap up into the last, the last section, um, I know we touched on this a little bit at the beginning, but we talked about how we pivoted during COVID, right? And kind of our steps to kind of just get through what we've experienced over the last 18 months. But As we're looking ahead, we're well into the 21st century now, but as we kind of look ahead and look past COVID, what do you think the evolution of art song looks like? And that can either be, you know, composition or performance, doesn't really matter to me, but what do you see art song kind of evolving into, if anything beyond what we are now, and do we have an obligation to help it evolve? I don't know that that art song as a form itself needs to evolve in in like a huge way. I think the form is the form and it's special in its intimacy. 
Um, the way it's delivered, I guess, is is maybe what's evolving, and and some of the packaging, I suppose, a Schubert song or, or 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 you know, it is still going to be sort of like this wonderful pod of of completeness in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, but it will be incredibly interesting to see how we can draw new audiences through different through different ways and ideas that can surround that. And I don't think it's, I think, I think neither is, is sort of better than the other, but I, uh, I'm, I'm interested in that. And I think we as an organization are interested in, in, in different ways that we can explore within the genre. But I don't think it's be, to, to make it necessarily different because it's already wonderful. Yeah, I, th- I think the evolution is, is organic um, in the sense that, you know, Schubert's songs are so powerful because they so brilliantly depicted a moment that took place in 1827 in mm-hmm. Vienna. And the poetry caught that, the music caught that again, and we still have all the historical documentation to keep building that bridge over and over again to have a sense of what that was back then and how we understand it now. But the the evolution is undoubtedly continuing to capture stories that mean something in 2025 or in 2035 and going forward. And we don't know what those stories are yet, but we will know them when we're in them. I trust artists to continue to seek and need to tell these stories. And I think, do we have an obligation? I, I don't love that word. It feels like something you have to like wear that's heavy and is a burden. Opportunity. Maybe. Opportunity is a... I think a wonderful expression of something similar for some people, a calling. We do it because we love it. And there are other people who feel just the same. And I feel really excited about where things are going. And I really trust that that's going to continue. I agree. And it's kind of like we were talking about a little earlier, how I think especially when people had time to slow down during the pandemic, they had a lot of time to think about things that they maybe didn't want to. And had time to do a lot of personal reflection. Mm. And I think that music tends to sit about a year behind actual events. Mm. You know, like an event will happen, then about a year later, some kind of musical response will come out. Like an artist will release an album or a composer will come out with a new song or song cycle. I'm really curious to see what that sort of organic evolution of our storytelling will come out of this past year and I think there's going to be a lot once people have had time to take the time to process what we've all gone through and especially for the people that I've talked to who have said like I can't right now but I might later I'm really excited about what's going to emerge out of this sort of new blossoming (laughs) of life (laughs) hopefully soon yeah I was one of those people I think like where I just I just couldn't I just didn't didn't want to yeah yeah you too (laughs) yeah and uh I feel like not only are there going to be some floodgates opening um in in certain circumstances but but it's going to be so much bigger in terms of where that happens I mean truly global is what I'm excited about is how we see this as a truly global art form that is not just about how do we wear colonialist trappings, you know, in certain different places in the planet, you know, but truly what does a real partnership look like when we tell stories? What does a real cultural partnership look like? That That's what makes me super excited for the future. I have a giant, giant grin on my face because I'm, <laughs> that's like, that's what I'm living for is is that explosion of connection and storytelling and art and yeah. all of that coming together because it's it's going to happen. I feel it. <laughs> so as we're wrapping up here, um, I wanted to ask the two of you um, if you have any projects or shows that um, the folks who are listening can kind of keep their eyeballs out for, how they can connect with you um, so that we can add more fans to the Sparks and Wiry Cries fan base. We're, we're going to do a January festival again. <laughs> um, and so that's the 14th and 15th of January. They're going to be recorded again in November. We're going to make sure that we record everything just in case. Also because we found that it was, again, it was a wonderful way to, to be able to disseminate this, this great, these great stories. Um, 
the Song Slam will be hybrid. It will be live, um, but also recorded so that people can, can see them from wherever they are. And it is, in some ways, it worked really well for us last year. It will be, in some ways, a fundraiser for Sparks, but it will also be, will, it will deliver prize money to, to teams. And they will also get wonderful recordings out of it, every single one of them. Creating opportunities. It's great. And so, so important, especially during this time when opportunities seem few and far between. And then the last thing before before we say our adieus is we like to close with a little bit, uh, a little piece of advice from our guests. I have found that in the past people take this request very much to heart and have given me some very profound, like, leave me in tears advice that just leave me like sitting in a corner somewhere, like contemplating my life. But because I'm one of those people who laughs in the face of discomfort, I'm like, let's talk about how we shouldn't touch our eyeballs after chopping ghost peppers. So so if you were to leave us with a piece of advice, the two of you, what, what would your piece of advice be? I'll share the advice that I'm trying to give myself each day, which is to listen and then pause, and then ask questions, and then listen, and then pause. And then if there's a response that's necessary, give it. That's awesome. I need that. I need that. (laughs) I need that in staff meetings and all sorts of meetings. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Wearing red nail polish in a chicken coop will make chickens peck your feet, so be careful. Wowzers. They go after red. It's like sharks. Just like bulls. Bulls too. (laughs) Martha, that sounds intense. Are you okay? I'm totally fine. No, like not like not like painful. They're not strong enough. It's just they're they're interested. (laughs) I'm literally wearing red toenail polish right now. Like me too. And I'm going to the Minnesota State Fair on Monday. There's gonna be (gasps) chickens everywhere. You're gonna be fine. Maybe it's only my chickens. <laughs> I feel like at the state fair, you're not just going to be walking in amidst the chickens, right? I mean, the thing is, is that Martha has my father. He that... likes to go see the animals. Oh. Oh. <laughs> it doesn't hurt. They're just very curious about what that might be. <laughs> Something to do with pecking order and like, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I think you should get a video of that sometime. I feel like that would do well on so the internet. <laughs> I'm sorry. I try. I truly am not laughing at your misfortune. It's just that's so funny. Listen, if y'all haven't checked out a song slam yet, this is the year to do it. We are so pumped for ours in January. Just a couple other things. We are going to be putting out our podcast monthly now, as opposed to every other week, and new episodes will be out on the first Monday of the month. So be sure to subscribe in order to keep up with new episodes this season. We've got an awesome lineup of guests, and I'm really excited about it. If you're wondering what you'll do in between episode releases, be sure to check out our new Spotify playlist that is also updated monthly. And as always, you can find out more at CincinnatiSongInitiative.org and follow us on all the socials. Until next time, just keep singing, y'all. This podcast is produced by Cincinnati Song Initiative and hosted on Anchor. This episode was edited and engineered by Andrew Nally. Thank you.